Everybody, let's uh, go ahead and start. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we have, we have a guest today. You want to introduce yourself? Gary, yeah, he's visiting with EJ, correct? correct? Yeah, and so he's going to sit in today, learn all about procreation and reproduction. So we're, <laughs> we're moving into the, the, the next section, our next unit. So I will, by Friday, have everything ready for the quiz. I, I mean, the, the homily, I posted the notes online, what the rubrics are, what, what the rules are. If you have any questions or comments, please let me know. I want to make this as fair and as fun as possible. Fun, I don't know, but no, it's really, really easy. They're really easy. I'm like, it's just clear. You just do what I tell you to do. You're gonna make a good grade. Don't be obnoxious. That's one of them. Um, anyhow, uh, but look, I'm really excited. On Friday and then on Monday, Dr. Susan Caldwell will be here, uh, and she's gonna be go- talking about female fertility to help you all understand how female fertility works. Uh, and then also NAPRO technology, uh, the science of, of you know the chemical reproduction, uh, chemical contraception, why it's bad. She's got a really powerful testimony. Uh, y'all are gonna love her. Now the thing was is brother brought up the point that if I give y'all the quiz at the end of class, well then y'all have another class after this. I didn't know that on Friday, so I want to be able to be fair to sit, uh, to Dr. Caldwell. So we may do it at the beginning. Or I may have her end a little bit early uh, and do it at the end. I'll let you know. I just need to make sure that I'm fair with her um, because she's coming in for the for the role. The role may come out nothing, so we'll see. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, actually, you know, some great news is I told a religious sister friend of mine about that who teaches, and she adopted it for her eighth grade class. Those poor children. Oh no, they love it. We love it. So you know what? You know what? Maybe one day it'd be fun. Any of you? Okay, this is. There are a lot of you who are nerds in here. I know that. All of you, mostly. Uh, but if you, if anybody of you D and D people want to bring in a 32, bring in some massive, whatever big nerd dice y'all have. Yeah, if you want to bring some big nerd dice, uh, we can. Some big celibacy dice. Uh, Already there. Yeah. So some celibacy dice. You carry that around. Hey, if women see you that with that, you must be discerning the priesthood. It's like if you're playing Pokemon. All right. So anyhow, that would be fun. So we're we're gonna focus now to this beginning of life section. Uh, and most of what we're going to do is going to be focused on those two documents from the CDF, even though we're not going to get to them really until next week. We'll talk a little bit about it now, but we're going to get into much more of it uh, next week. Donum Vitae from 1987 and Dignitatis Personae from 2008. Y'all have really got to read those, not just because you may have a quiz on them, but these are crucial for you to read as sort of the seminal documents for understanding the church's teaching on uh, beginning of life issues and IVF. Um, Basically laying out the church teaching on questions regarding advances in biomedicine, 
especially IVF or uh, ARTs, artificial reproductive technologies. Um, you know, they both deal with the same issues, but Dignitas Personae deals with advances in science and medicine uh, that happened in the years after 87 uh, and sort of updates a lot of it. Well, I'm not necessarily going to go over the documents themselves where we're going to read through them. You can read it and kind of figure it out yourself, but draw principles from it. Uh, that will help us in the upcoming lessons. This, though, is going to be more of a philosophical reflection, setting up some important points as we get into the practicals over the course of the next couple of weeks. Inspired by the Ratzinger article on the difference between procreation and reproduction, but also that other article that I had you read uh, that establishes that fundamental distinction between uh, from Kampowski, from the difference between uh, the child as a gift and the child as a product of our own engineering. Uh, but a lot of this sort of stems back to and can be tied back to our initial discussions in the first two classes of the technocratic paradigm and its anthropology and its ethics. And when it comes down to it, when we talk about IVF, when we talk about these artificial reproductive technologies, which everybody just sort of mindlessly accepts now, Nobody has any problem with this, as we talked about partially because the church probably didn't do a very good job of teaching on it, but ultimately because we are living in a world with two radically different worldviews. The secular, nihilistic worldview should have no problem with this. This is a wonderful thing. We can help women who can't have children. The sacramental worldview, which sees the human person and the world in a different perspective, a more metaphysical, teleological perspective, is going to have some problems. But ultimately, because of the advances of science and technology, which have done a lot of good things, we now, within the past 50 years, have the ability to create human life in a laboratory as a result of a technological, scientific process. So, so remember we talked about in sexual ethics that you have the wheel you have fire, you have all these things that have changed, been like sea changes in culture. The, the ability to have contraception, to separate the unitive and procreative aspect of marriage for the first time, and to free up women's reproductive potentials, this has only been for about 60 years. We don't even fully understand how this is going to change culture. Then, within the past 50 years, the ability to create life outside of the natural union of man and woman, which humans have been doing and our species have been doing for thousands of years. This is the way every other sort of creatures have done it until we've started learning to be able to do the same thing, genetically engineer and produce uh, animals outside of that normal union. It is the evidence of power, the power of technological control over nature. It's something that we once said was reserved for God. The ability to create a new life exists. And as we'll see, you know, we believe that God ensouls that, that embryo, that, 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 that zygote from the very beginning. But we'll get into that later on. So basically, when we're looking at this teaching... The church teaching, as we know, the most fundamental moral principle is the inherent dignity of the human person created in the image of God. 
Donavide spells out the criteria of moral judgment as regards the applications of scientific research and technology, especially into, in relation to human, human life and its beginnings. So this is what it's going to do, and it's going to give three criteria, three criteria for discerning this. The first is the respect, defense, and promotion of man and woman, his primary and fundamental right to life, and his dignity as a person who is endowed with a spiritual soul and with moral responsibility and who is called to beatific communion with God. All of these things are sort of the criteria for establishing human dignity. Yeah, the first is the criteria for moral judgment as regards to application of all scientific research to humans. First of all, it shows respect, defense, and the promotion of man. It respects his primary and fundamental right to life. And respects his dignity as a person endowed with a spiritual soul and with moral responsibility. And was called to beatific communion with God. So again, compare this to our discussion on moral status. All of these things here are talking about things that are inherent in the nature of the person created in the image of God with a body and soul. But notice, we're not, and we've said this before, we're not just treating the human being as res extensa, as a body that can be an object for investigation, technology, or medicine. The human has an immortal and spiritual dimension. I know we've talked about this in anthropology. Dignitatis Personae, number six, explains how man is a unified totality. These two dimensions of life, the natural and the supernatural, allow us to understand better the sense in which the acts that permit a new human being to come into existence, in which a man and woman give themselves to each other, or a reflection of Trinitarian love. So, so what here, from the perspective of a Catholic, and I would say generally most Christians, what is, if we recognize the human being as this union of body and soul, what becomes the problem with creating a human being in the lab? Well, being is totally free. It's totally free. What, what, what becomes the problem? Well, you're, you're divorcing, uh, you're divorcing that, that, the origin of that person from the bodily experience of, of being appropriate, right? True. We're going to get to that. But like, just like, if, if we we're trying to regard man in that supernatural relation as a unit of body and soul, where does the soul come from? God. It has a supernatural origin in a certain sense. It's fused by God. Can the scientist infuse the soul? No. no. Like, as I said, God is going to infuse that soul, but instead of working, cooperating with his design, we create the body. But it's sort of like an, an idea or a belief in a certain sense from that perspective. Well, there is no God. We don't need him to infuse the soul, even though we believe that he still does. Yes. I guess... Really just controlling the environment in which it happens now, right? 
True, but the right is going to talk about that homunculus, and he's going to, I think, in reference sort of like a man's desire to create another human. Uh, what does that mean outside by his own power? You are creating the, you, you are changing the environment, but as we'll see, you're changing, I guess, the natural environment to an artificial one. But then, as a result, what does that child become if it's not the product of the marital act? We're, we're going to get to that. Yeah. It seems like you're changing the, the entire spiritual environment of what is intended and all the, all the possible outcomes that when you're choosing to do something, all that stuff has a real effect that we've just completely forgotten about. So it's like this complete change. So if you're going to make somebody in the lab and you're going to treat them like a lab object, that person might grow up and really acting and behaving like a lab object. And in the sense that their, their self-image is so warped that they actually, yeah, without that infusion of something that, that most of us get, they're going to be, you know, Yeah, so. no, it's it's true, which I think there, there have been, we, now we have those, the original ones who were created in the lab. We can do some studies of their psychology and how they develop. I don't know how they have, but yet we can see from a deeper philosophical perspective, there could be issues which we're going to get to. I just want to make the point that you can't create a soul in a lab. And so for the church, because we believe we are embodied creatures with a body and a soul, you're, you're not going to be able to create that in a lab. Now, granted, it brings up when is the soul put in, but that uh, there are varying theories d- developed throughout the church based on biology for the time. For me, it's kind of like the same moot point of human person versus human being. I like to focus on the human being who has dignity. <clears throat> and then so as a result, you know, you, you create in the lab this individual member of the human species. And so, but here in embryonic stage of development, we're gonna look a lot more at embryos and their status, but if they are human beings, they have div- dignity. Um, but we're gonna look more about that a little bit later on. But there is another essential criterion of moral judgment, not just the fact that we have the dignity of the human being and that because he's created his body and soul, where by creating him in a lab, we sort of attempt to push God out of the perspective, but it is the way in which he comes into being. Not in a lab, but in the context of marital love. So this is a very, very important point. It's not just we don't think that the child or human being ought to come as a product of technological technique or procedure, but the child ought to come into existence through the marital act, from a human act. So dignitatis personae six, respect for the dignity is owed to every human being because each one carries in an indelible way his own dignity and value. We know that. The origin of human life has its authentic context in marriage and in the family, where it is generated through an act which expresses the reciprocal love between man and woman. Procreation, which is truly responsible vis-a-vis the child to be born, must be the fruit of marriage. So it's an emphasis, not just like the negative thing, do not create human life in a lab, but the positive good that God has willed and intended for life to come as a result of the gift of self, 
within the context of marriage. Now, he's not going to curse or condemn people who come from labs or outside of marriage. We don't believe that. But there are two points here. That each child would be conceived responsibly or ought to be conceived responsibly within the context of the loving marriage between two spouses. So again, this is when we get into looking at homologous procedures where you're taking the the gametes of the same couple versus heterologous where you're taking the gamete from another one. It's the same way, oh, I can't get pregnant. Let me go sleep with another person so I can get pregnant. No, marriage and the union of the two matters a lot. And that procreation, the conception of a new life, this is number two, ought to take place within the context of the marital act. As we saw last semester, that marital act is, is infused with sacramental meaning. But sex is more than physical. And so Dona Vitae says that spouses mutually express their personal love in the language of the body, which clearly involves both sponsal meanings and parental ones. So just bringing in the teaching of John Paul II, that gift of self, the communion that comes as a result of it. So, I didn't catch the difference between the two points. No, the two, I mean, the two points is that, that each child would be um, within the context of a loving marriage, and then within that marriage, the marital act itself. So you could have the marital act, but not within a marriage. Okay. So it's within a, the marital act within the context of marriage as a whole. So showing and highlighting the, the importance of marriage, yeah. So, um, reading the document, I understand the difference between reproduction and procreation, right? And like you mentioned before. I'm just struggling, like, what is the, what is, is there any good, any good, any positive from this, um, um, from the point of reproduction, like the ability that we humans have been able to achieve this, this height? Mm-hmm. Is there any good that can come out of it? at all. Like, I'm just curious, because it just seems like the document is, like, you know, just taking it down, and there's no, uh, any credit to the human capacity to be able to achieve something that could help a couple that's struggling. Well, I, I would I would say, uh, and we could maybe get into this as we go on, first of all, the good that comes out of it is a new life. So in the same sense that a couple has a child out of wedlock, it's not the ideal situation, but we are going to say that the life that came from it is good, and thank goodness they didn't have an abortion. We're going to affirm that. So there's not in any way, shape, or form that we want to say that somehow because the child was created in a lab that it's a bad thing. Number two is the church, I think, would recognize the value of the advances of science and technology and the intention to help uh, couples who struggle with infertility. So, like, the intention here is good, that further intention. But we're going to get back down to, well, what are you using that technology for? So, in the same sense, you could say a lot of the technology that uh, has been used for nuclear fission or for plastics or any of these other technologies that are good things. The, the, the progress is important. The insights that we have are good. It depends on what purpose you use them for. If you're going to use them to build nuclear bombs to kill innocent people, that's, that's not a good thing. 
If you're going to use the technology to find a way to uh, euthanize people, that's not good. The technology in itself, as we talked about, is not necessarily good or bad. It's not necessarily neutral either. Um, but it's going to be why we use it. And I think you make a point, and this is what I'm going to, we're going to really focus on. We're going to have a whole class on infertility. And I know that Dr. Caldwell has part of that as her testimony. What we can do is highlight the good of the intention and the desire for helping people, but the ends don't justify the means. The ends don't justify the means. Let's continue, and I think we're going to maybe highlight it. If not today, we're going to get to that when we look at the class on infertility. So creating a child in a lab, even though it has a good intention, or not in a human manner, quote-unquote, becomes seriously morally problematic. It does not respect the dignity or the meaning of the act, nor of marriage. But also the issue becomes its impact towards what is owed the child. Because now the child becomes, and this for me is key, a product of a technique rather than a gift of love. Product versus gift. Don Vitae, in reality, in reality, the origin of a human person is the result of an act of giving. The one conceived must be the fruit of his parents' love. He cannot be desired or conceived as the product of an intervention of medical or biological techniques. That would be the equivalent of reducing him to an object of scientific technology. No one may subject the coming of a child into the world to conditions of technical efficiency, which are to be evaluated according to the standards of control and dimension. Dominion, I'm sorry. So I, I think you can kind of look at, you know, brave new world here, where we're creating in a different way humans in a lab. That, of course, is an extreme version of it. But still, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it'll never happen. Because now this child is a product of our technological prowess and not necessarily a gift. They don't come about in the same way. Is it possible that there could be a culture that treats them differently because of where they came from? I'm not saying that we do now. Most people don't even know, you know whether or not they were a product of IVF or not. This gift that comes out of the lab, uh, the, the mother and father realize that there's not going to be any problems with that child physically. Well, we're, we're going to get to that because now we have, now, unlike then, we have control over selection, editing the embryos. You so, don't have to worry about a Down syndrome child. Not anymore. Not in Iceland, you don't. I mean, not nicely, you don't. So yeah, it is. So these are all these ethical questions we're going to get to. But yeah, so it's that exertion of control rather than receiving it as a gift. The church argues that the child has a right to be conceived in a natural way, not as a product of the lab process. The child has the right to be conceived, it says, carried in the womb, brought into the world, and brought up within marriage. It is through the secure and recognized relationship 
to his own parents that the child can discover his own identity and achieve his own proper human development. So the question, of course, is going to be how, how can someone who doesn't exist have a right to be conceived in a certain way? Uh, but that's, I guess, more of a, a philosophical question. I think we understand what the church is trying to say. So there, there are numerous rights claims. So as a result, it implies certain moral duties on behalf of the parents. That the child has the right to be conceived in a natural way, to not be a product of technology. The parents have um, this great responsibility. So these points really become the basis of evaluating most all of moral the moral issues that deal with artificial reproductive technologies. So for instance, and we'll get into it, artificial insemination, where you know the 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 the, the man's semen is collected, which of course we could say, well, how it's collected is probably morally problematic from the church's perspective according to sexual ethics. And then the woman is inseminated with a syringe or something. Why would that be morally problematic? According to these criteria. Yeah. Going back, it destroys the unitive, the whole act itself. So you have that. Yeah, it's a technological process. Yeah. I mean, you might be homologous. You may have the, 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 the sperm and the egg of the, the two parents that are married. It could be within the context of marriage. But still, it's not. So it is, but it's not in that human way. And of course, in vitro fertilization becomes the same problem. Whether it is from the same parents or different, it really doesn't matter. One, it's not within the context of marriage. The other, it is within the context of marriage. But still, it's not in the human way. Where we're going to look at the actual IVF procedure, where you have the petri dish, you have the egg, the sperms, which have been cleaned and you fertilize it. So it's not within the context of the marital act. Then, of course, we're going to get into multiple other issues, the treatment of frozen embryos. Uh, what do you do? Because multiple eggs, eggs are harvested. They are then um, prepared, and then multiple ones are inseminated or, or, or fertilized, and they're all sort of put into the woman in hopes that one will take, as it were. Does and that's, that to the mom? that's, yeah, that's if you hear somebody having eight kids, they've done IVF. All right. It's just, you know, that's how, that's how it works. Yes. And of course, other issues we're going to go later. So you keep those principles within the context of marriage, homologous within the context of the marital act. If it falls outside of either of those two, the church is going to struggle to approve of it morally. But this is where we, we get into that, that language that Ratzinger brings up, and I think is the, the deeper philosophical language, of procreation to create forth or to bring forth, which is we would believe is a cooperation with God, versus reproduction, to produce, to bring forth a product. So in procreation, the child is begotten through a personal act of self-gift. He's not made. 
can control the environment in which the child comes. Highlighting the fact that children are gifts, not products. Humans come from gift, not from a procedure. How do parents' attitudes change towards the child? You know, this is a big... uh, How many of you remember 2001, Steven Spielberg's film, AI? Okay, so AI, brilliant, I think, until the end when it became stupid. But... (laughs) No. All right, I shall watch the director's cut. It's like watching the director's cut of The Exorcist. That's much better than the original one. Uh, uh, Anyhow, so, yeah, here you have this child is produced sort of as a clone or robot child, and then the parents have these expectations of what this child is going to live up to because it's a, a model of the previous child they had, but the child is not the same, and so they're sort of disappointed in the child. I would say, though, we've had enough of IVF and ARTs to be able to do I don't know if any psychological studies have done on the development of these kids. Uh, some of you may know. No, what's that? So it's the I can guess what it is, but in USA Today school is the higher percentage of students have a complete and total depressive breakdown and loss of meaning of life in it. So they call it Ivy League because in the Ivy Leagues, up to fifty percent of students have a complete and total emotional and psychological breakdown. So my point is the uh, the control the controllability of outcomes and the expectations of outcomes in general, which is usually kind of uh, when they do studies they find that it's pretty positively with how good of a college you get to, with rare exception, the kids are genius, whatever. But a lot of times in modern America, it's like this hyper-controlled helicopter parent attitude. So all of this thing, all these things go together, in my opinion, in my experience, with a general attitude of, I need them to turn out this way or I'm a bad parent. Mm-hmm. This deep fear of failure inside of the parent, this desire to control, a lack of confidence in God's providence. I mean, all these things go together. So I don't have a specific IVF thing, but the kids that come out of that or live in a culture or surrounded by IVF kids in that demographic just tend to have total and complete breakdowns in life. I'd be curious, I mean, you have the pressure from the parents. I'd be curious to know how many kids in the IVF, how many kids in the Ivy League are IVF uh, kids? Uh, no, I've looked into it. There's really not a lot of research out there. I think in part because if you show that IVF kids have a hard time at things, you lose money. Yeah. Uh, it's bad business, but from my very limited experience with several friends who are the product of IVF, a lot of them have mental health issues, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, but then there is kind of that existential crisis of what the hell am I? Oh, yeah. Well, particularly if they come to find out at the time they find out they're a product of IVF. Yeah. We're also going to look at, when we look at IVF itself, that I, I, I could talk, well, I'll repeat this later on. Doctors that I know who work in um, the NICUs, they, he told me the story. He said there was a doctor who's a complete secularist, works in the, in the uh, NICU. And every time he sees a baby in the NICU that is really, really sick and is struggling to be healthy, he automatically knows IVF. IVF. So talk to doctors who work in uh, obstetricians. They will tell you that you, they can pretty much guess if there's a kid who's, who's sick is going to struggle and struggle to get well, or if they see a kid who's struggling and they know that it's a kid from IVF, they're going to have a harder time getting better. Now, their theory is why that is, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. So 
I mean, in a certain sense, you could say even procreation is reproduction because we are bringing forth a child. But the shift in language that we're now not saying procreation as much, but reproductive rights instead of procreative rights shows a desire, I think, in the technocratic mindset, maybe to push God out, but that desire to control. So when if you, if it happens in a lab and you exert control over it, what, what's the difference between that and the marital act? Besides the fact that one's in a lab and whatnot, what is the older ultimate difference? And, and, and I think, yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah, but no, let me let me show y'all what I think, if I could draw a diagram that might be able to illustrate this. So here you have, let's say, uh, the marital act, and then here you have IVF, and I guess you could say these are both actions that are chosen, and then what is the, the outcome? You know, a baby. You want a child? You want a little baby? Yes. What's that? Because I think what's actually almost more interesting is the the whole like what sort of relationship. In other words, if you are committed to doing everything the church teaches, you're going to be scared crapless about getting into a marriage with the wrong sort of person in the wrong sort of way. In other words. It, the, the a priori commitment and the acting out of the church's restrictions on how we can do this thing actually weed out so many terrible attachment methods inside of a, a husband and wife or potential relationship. In other words, what sort of neuroses do you have to bring in to only be able to control this thing? And that, I think, is where things get really interesting because if you start if you start doing stuff like abstaining before marriage mm-hmm. and trusting and not being abandoned in that, but that's tough for certain sorts of women and men. I mean, that's both. And if you're able to agree to the fact that I'm not going to be in control of this, maybe I can abstain for a time, but I'm not in control of this emotional thing. So I'm not saying, but what's interesting is the, the, the mirror image of what goes into these two different scenarios and what comes out are very, there's like a beautiful harmonic. Well, I think you could probably say, yeah, that like the, the, there's the, the, the overarching picture of not only the child is a product of the marital act, the child is a product of the marital act taken within the context of marriage, but marriage is within the context of the preparation for marriage, the baggage you bring in, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your expectations. Should marry the right person or the wrong person? Unfortunately, you can have all those factors in there, but then passion and emotion takes over and you don't use reason and you choose the wrong person. And the priest doesn't really have a right to deny you marriage because it's a natural right. The point is, is what is, this is the action. And what is this? The outcome. I'm not trying to say the child is an outcome, but the, 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 
let me go. Let me keep going on. I would love to take your questions, but I'm gonna have to keep it just to these guys. We can talk later on, but I'm gonna keep it to the guys. What is the difference here? Once from love, I mean, the, the mother and the father don't, true, don't true. go into it thinking they're gonna. Okay, we're, exactly. But what are you what are you controlling? You're controlling the outcome. Here, you're not controlling the outcome. You're, you're, you're the, here's the action is you're the same as different actions. Here, you you are going to do this action, but you don't know if the kid's going to come from it. There's a chance a kid could come from it. You can make it so okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have sex during this specific period of time, and hopefully the kid will come from. Here with IVF, you are controlling the outcome. There's no chance. There's no handing it over to God. There's no handing it over to this potential. And so th this is if, the article from Kampowski, which references Martin Ronheimer. But if you read Ronheimer's bigger article, which I think adds another, or another level, which I have found is one of the most convincing arguments against IVF. Now, granted, you can make all the arguments you want. Someone who's freaking out about being infertile is still going to choose what they want, when they want, how they want. But when you choose this act of the marital act, you're choosing to have sex. You're choosing to give yourself. Is there a chance that a child will come from it? Yeah. It's kind of like the roll of the dice that y'all are going to do on Friday. You know, you, you have a it's there, there, there's a certain controlled environment, but you're not controlling the outcome. Here, you are choosing the act that you know will bring forth a certain outcome. You know that if I do the IVF procedure, I am going to create new life. So it's a direct result of a choice. It's not a gift. So I am choosing this thing that may bring about a child who I'll receive as a gift. Oh, I'm choosing this thing and I will bring about a child. So you are choosing to be a father or a mother. Whenever a couple gets married, when they have sex, are they choosing to be a father or a mother? No, they are choosing to do the thing that God willing will make them a father or a mother. There's no 100% certainty that if they do the marital act, boop, a child's going to come from it. But in this, you have control of the outcome. You just know top of your head if like, IVF has a success rate, like is it guaranteed every time? Oh, well, go well, no, no. You have two different distinctions. You have the, do you, is there going to be a success rate of 100% of actual fertilization in the Petri dish? Yeah. Will you have a fertilization of those embryos being successfully implanted? No, you don't. You don't have access to that, but in the same sense, you don't have the same control over this this act too. You know, you have no idea. You can have the marital act, you could have a conception, but then there could be a miscarriage, there could be a lack of implantation, there could be a number of different things that happen. So yet, you, in a certain sense, have two acts here. You have the conception itself, then the implantation. Uh, so in that Kempowski article, he quotes this French philosopher Gaucher who sort of sums it up by saying, the child is no longer the random fruit of sexuality whose legitimate context is given by marriage. He or she is the result of an expressed desire, which is different from sexual desire and consciously directed to the conception of a human being. What is no longer content to have a child, one makes a child, and they these are only legitimate children in as much 
as they are legitimated by a desire to have them. So let's say today I want to eat fried chicken. I will go to Cane's or now uh, Popeye's. Or if I want to go to right up the road, I can go to Chick-fil-A. And I can do the thing that will produce chicken. I will have chicken in my hand. I, I, will, I will in my belly. I will I will procure chicken. It's not up to chance. I it's not like going to the cafeteria over here at the refectory. You don't know if you're gonna get chicken or not. You don't know what you're gonna get. Huh? Even if you actually sign up for chicken, you don't know. So it's that control over the process. What, but that's the thing. One does not choose to become a mother. One chooses to do the action that brings it about. So all of a sudden now, this is what Ratzinger talks about. It's man's desire to make a man. So yeah, it's kind of the, the difference. It is kind of Frankenstein's monster. Um, it's that creation of the homunculus. And, and so uh, Gilbert Mylander, who I don't think I had you read his article, he makes this further distinction, which I think is valuable here, doing versus making. Procreation, reproduction. Doing versus making. Sex is doing. Sex is not making a child. Sex is an act of love, and children may or may not come from, come from it. You can't control it. But here, we can make the child. We can control. We have a direct intention. I am going to do this thing that I know will produce a child. Whether or not that embryo will implant or not, that's a different story. But I'm going to produce a child. The real issue is, which I think is... I hate to say a more pressing issue, but one that has bigger, potentially more shocking ethical significance is the ability now to do that genetic diagnosis. So before, with IVF, before we implant the embryos, we can know if it has Down syndrome, we're not going to implant that. We're going to get, we're going to get rid of it. Oh, I want a boy. Okay. What about CRISPR? Now where I can take that child and say, oh, I'm going to edit this thing out of it or edit this thing into it. This is potential. You can do this. People are doing it. And, and there's a gut reaction to that. But then again, y'all, there was a gut reaction to IVF when it came out. People didn't like it. And that disappeared. There was a gut reaction to gay marriage. People didn't like it. That disappeared. So what are we going to do as we move forward where not only does this technology advance, but as we'll see, it becomes easily accessible. When was that shift in opinion? Like, where IVF became acceptable? I mean, I, I think this IVF first one was 78, wasn't it? 77, 78, the first child. I, I think the Vatican probably had to put that document out 10 years later because things had begun to change. That the, the overriding good of combating infertility uh, outweighed whatever repugnance people would have had that you're creating life in a lab. I would probably say it was sometimes in the late 80s. So the more reproduction becomes separated from coitus and the more we begin to pick and choose, 
among possible children, the greater the responsibility we should have for the character of the next generation. So all of a sudden, like, you know, do we have a, is there going to become like, oh, what, what should the character of the next generation look like? Should we only have IVF, uh, uh, Ivy League potentials? Are we going to start selecting for geniuses, athletic ability? We're going to talk about that human modification. But we need to have the humility to receive children rather than make them. Now, Mylander also brings up this really interesting question. If IVF would ever become the norm, let's say it would, where we just no longer, we want to control our kids, we want to make sure they're all super smart, super athletic, there we weed out any kind of disease. I'm not saying we're going to do that, but let's say we do. What becomes of sex? Sex isn't necessary for reproduction anymore. I mean, right now, sex isn't necessarily necessary for reproduction. What becomes of sex? Is it just about pleasure? Is it about play? But we believe that it has a meaning. Would we have to negate that meaning, reorder the meaning? Of course, we know we can't, but this is it. We've got to start asking these questions. As the more IVF becomes acceptable, what then becomes of sex? Other further considerations. First of all, it's impact on families and generations. This is one of the things, the bond between parents and children. And so Mylander brings up these arguments that we are embodied creatures and occupy a fixed place in human generations. So all of a sudden you start messing with that. What does it look like generationally? The child is that yes to the loving gift of parents, and there's got to be that close connection. You get even more problematic if you have third-party donors or a surrogate, heterologous. Donated gametes blurs the lines of generations, which you're going to really see how that is. And then with clones, you know, what are, what are the potential to be able to now, like, somehow take the, the sperm of a man or the egg of a woman and then take it out and create a sperm from the egg, which there's ideally possibly can do that, and then fertilize it, and so you have the same parents with the same genetic code. How does that impact our understanding of children? What about freedom? Now, a lot of this is guided by the concept of procreative liberty. So, hey, women should be able to have the reproductive rights to kill their child. They should have the rights to do this. One of the big issues, though, that we're going to see is, do you know how many right now, as far as I understand it, how many federal laws there are regulating gamete donation, sperm donation, IVF clinics? None. There are none. Zero. Why would there be federal Well, because there are these significant problems that the states, it appears, cannot control it. And granted, there are different states' laws. A lot of states don't even get involved with this. I think a lot of it, we can make argue, expresses this, we talked about expressive individualism. I need to express myself with my sexuality, with my gender, with my children. My child now is an expression, instead of an expression of my genetic self, it's of my own taste and likes. This is what I want my kid to be. Yeah, that, that's been a thought recurring in, in my mind, like, if you're, if you're trying to solve the problem of infertility, which you know, that's an odd way of putting it right off the bat, 
trying to solve infertility. Uh, you know, why would you choose IVF? Like, why is that better than something like adoption? You know, there's still plenty of orphans. orphans. And you, I mean, like, I get it. Maybe there's this primal thing, like, I want to be fertile. Maybe there's this inadequacy there. But, you know, but, yeah, it, it's strange to me that there's this, you know, um, it's obviously not just about this generosity about raising a, a kid. There's something else. There's some mm -hmm. other motivation. Oh, yeah. Which I think is tied back to that expressive individualism as freedom as autonomy in our own interior states. Kapowski brings up a very interesting argument. If we can control life at its start, why not control it at its end? We can control when life and how life comes into the existence. Why not control it? It's the same logic. And so he argues that it's going to lead to a widespread acceptance of euthanasia. And boy, oh boy, we're seeing a push for that now. Is there a connection there? What is the responsibility of government, and particularly that the, 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 the bureaucracy, the state, controlling things through techne? What is the risk of the brave new world? This is what Ratzinger says when it comes to this concept of, of freedom. The freedom which emancipates man and his research from ethics thus presupposes at its inception the denial of freedom. What remains is the power of the World Controller's Council, a technical rationality which itself stands only to service to necessity, but wants to replace the accidental occurrences of its combinations with the logic of planning. Again, what about how, are, how can governments start planning this? What if IVF becomes the norm? And the government or insurance companies say, we are not going to cover your child if you have a kid in the natural way or if you allow yourself to have a Down syndrome child. Too much of a risk. Now, not that any of you would think that the government would try to control in that regards. No. Not at all. Big Brother has, they care. But how to, how to preach this? This is the thing that I think with these ideas and talking about it, how do you preach it without seeming to condemn couples who don't, they've chosen this, they've chosen, they don't know that what they were doing is wrong. They don't know what they were doing is wrong. So I'm not going to condemn you. And also, not to seeming that you're condemning the child who comes as a result of IVF. There's got to be a pastoral sensitivity here. Particularly, let me tell you, with the issue of fertility, there are going to be people who are, if you on Mother's Day celebrate mothers, we'll talk a little bit about that, there are going to be people who get mad at you for celebrating Mother's Day as a priest because they can't be a mother. Just, just trust me. I'm not judging anybody, but this becomes this, this really sensitive issue. In conclusion, I, I think Ratzinger gives that possible answer. In order to talk about this and maybe convince people to have a synthesis of wisdom and science, as we talked about the, the, the narrative stories of couples who have been faithful, maybe who have adopted, who have chosen not to do IVF, that, that highlight the concept of the child as a gift, and so I'll, I'll close with this quote from Ratzinger from that article. The alternative before which we stand today can now be formulated very precisely. 
On the one hand, we can regard only the mechanical nature's laws as real and consider all that is personal, all love and self-giving as mere appearance, which though psychologically useful is ultimately unreal and untenable. I find for this position no other designation than the denial of humanity. If one follows out this logic, then of course the notion of God becomes just mythological talk and there's no real content. On the other hand, according to the other alternative, things are just the opposite. One consider the personal as the really real, the stronger and higher form of reality, which does not reduce the biological and mechanical to mere appearance, but draws them into itself and thus opens them up to a new dimension. Then not only does the notion of God retain sense and meaning, but the notion of human nature appears in a new light. Nature is then not just a fortuitously functioning rational order of letters and numbers, but carries within it a moral message, which precedes it and which appeals to mankind to find answers within it. The nature of things is such that the rightness of the one or the other basic decision cannot be decided in the laboratory. And the dispute about man, only man can decide whether to accept or deny himself. So as far as I see it, in that long quote, Ratzinger's arguing for a personalism. And, 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 and I wonder if there's not some possibility here where we talked about the moral status of the human person and we could get into the weeds about nominalism and about secondary characteristics, but if we put forth personal stories that not just give philosophical or theological arguments, but that highlight the person as a whole from a narrative perspective, even appealing to emotion, is that going to be something that we're going to be able to, more than making all these distinctions, as important as that they are, going to have more of a lasting effect and possibly convince people? Because we talked about reason, logic, you could get up there and give them all the teachings of Donum Vitae. Most people, there are going to be some people who it clicks for, but unless you give it that punch or you give the fundamental understanding, the dignity of the human person, and I hate to say kind of double down on that, and from that highlight the other stuff, I don't know how effective it's going to be. So Ratzinger's idea is like we, we highlight the human, we highlight the beautiful, we highlight the personal, and then hope that speaks to both minds and hearts. So we're going to see, like, again, the testimony of Dr. Caldwell is going to highlight this. These are things that I think we may not win the war, but we can at least win certain battles with it. So basically, I just wanted to offer that, that philosophical reflection of that fundamental issue that we're going to have with technology its impact, its control, and again, the ethic it generates. If you can do it, you should do it. This is the technological ethic here. We can do it, we should do it. But really, we're going to have to address that in, in a more deeper way. So let's close with the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The beginning is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you all very much. Yeah.
yeah, just watch it and watch it and tell what you can understand. You can't live up to the expectations. Oh, well, the opening scene where you bring up the the opening scene where you go into like, an IBM office and they're talking all about the and stuff like that, and designing the child, and, you know, basically, like, you know, these options are premium, you know, children, you don't want to do something to game, you can make sure that, like, straight up, we should watch, Gattaca is one of the movies that I have on my bioethical movie list, we should maybe, we should get some movie night, Gattaca is good. Thank <laughs> you. 